uh, the elders here for having me back. I remember being here in the spring, and uh, I've been at Sojourn for five years, but we're kind of starting the part in our journey where we're looking to be sent out and to plant a church, and it's made y'all heavy on my heart. And the reason is, it's not because of you know, numerical growth and, and things, and there's a lot of people here. It's because when I came here, I experienced a bunch of people who really seemed to genuinely love and enjoy one another. And that's been my heart, because I'd rather have a church that has the actual gospel life being exchanged between people than anything else. That's the seed that grows and makes a great church. It's not having a great worship or having perfect preaching or having the right liturgy. It's that gospel life that's shared between people who know and love Jesus that makes a church grow and flourish. And today, we, I have the great pleasure, so thank you, Garrison, I have the great pleasure of unpacking uh, Soli Deo Gloria, which is for God's glory alone. And if what Garrison preached last week is the bedrock of the Reformation, Scripture alone, then God's glory alone is the lifeblood. Because the thing about God's glory alone is it radically reorients everything in our life. If God's glory alone, the fame of God, the weight of God is the most important thing in the entire universe, then you can't just keep doing what you've been doing. Suddenly, all other things that could be glorious matter much less. First of all, our personal glory. And for Martin Luther, it broke his whole life because he had lived in a world with the medieval church where their glory was in the, in the Catholic church, glory was with the Pope, glory was with the priest, glory was with the sacraments, but our ordinary everyday life didn't matter. The view that was taught, the view that was lived was you just kind of get through your week, you get through milking cows, you get through all these things, and then you show up and you sing in Latin and you get the sacrament and you go home because all of the holy, glorious, sacred things happened at church. But Martin Luther's revolution brought glory down to everyone. He said God's available to everyone. There's no need for any of those things for you to experience God. In fact, wherever you obey God, you are doing that thing for the glory of God. And this isn't Martin Luther's opinion. It's the opinion of that bedrock of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 says, Whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. Martin Luther said, A milkmaid brings glory to God as she milks a cow in obedience to God. And so God's glory, well, it feels so high and lifted up, and it is. It's the most glorious high thing. It's the weightiest thing. It's the ultimate reality. It's the thing you've all been hardwired for. We all seek glory, whether we acknowledge it or not. We were built in the garden to know God's glory. We were built for him and by him and to him to seek and love it. And the fall broke that and took it away from us, and we've been seeking it ever since. And the Reformation brought glory back down to us to where it was higher than ever, but you could have glory in your everyday life. And that's where we're going today. But the main problem of why you're like, okay, like God's glorious, that sounds cool. I don't know if I've ever experienced glory. The main problem is not out there. It's not, you know, Roman Catholicism or, or religion or any of those things. That's not the main problem keeping you from experiencing God's glory. The main problem is us seeking our own glory. It's an internal problem because we want glory, but without experiencing God's glory, we seek our own glory. We seek to be made much of, to be thought well of. Martin Luther puts it this way. 
the quest for our own glory can never be satisfied. You ever feel like that? You thought that job or, or marriage or relationship or graduation would work, and then it fades away? How many of y'all are college football fans? Okay, this might not be popular, but I used to be on staff with Campus Crusade at the University of Alabama. And it was during the heyday. We won three national championships in four years. A ton of football players were a part of the movement. And one of the captains, he's one of the most notable players. As a freshman, he won the championship, but he wasn't a starter. As a sophomore, he won the championship, and he was the captain. He was the man. He was interviewed. It was on ESPN every day. And he said, the glory lasted about two weeks. And then I realized this wasn't going to work either. As a freshman, I won a national championship, but I wasn't a starter. I thought only if I was a starter, only if I was a captain, only if I was the leader. And that didn't work either. And we've all had those experiences, whether we've won a championship or not, these moments of fleeting glory that we should enjoy, but we enjoy as a reflection of a much greater glory. You were made for more. In a world full of fakes and frauds and advertising, you were made for more, and you know it. And that's why we seek after glory, even if we don't know that's what it's called. And so, we're going to talk about ultimate things today. And for those who believe in Jesus, those who follow Jesus, the essential quality that has changed in you, to follow Jesus means you've stopped seeking your own glory and have started seeking God's glory alone. You cannot be a Christian and seek your own glory. Jesus is seeking his Father's glory. If we follow Jesus, it's all about his glory. As Martin Luther said, our quest for our own glory cannot be satisfied. It must be extinguished. We cannot enjoy God's glory and our own glory simultaneously. They are mutually exclusive. Your glory will keep you from God's glory. I'll say Martin Luther's one more time because, you know, he's the Reformation guy. So we get to say it a couple times. The quest of our own glory can never be satisfied. It must be extinguished. And today we're going to look at a scripture that really is punching towards Paul is writing this letter to the Romans, and he goes on for 11 chapters explaining the grand theology of the Christian life. And the grand theology of Christian life could be summed up as this, that God's redemption plan for all the universe is by faith, through grace, by Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And he gets to the end of that in chapter 11. And then he's going to turn in chapters 12 through 16 and say, because of what God has done, this is how you live. That's what we do every Sunday. We look at what God has done in the gospel, and then we wonder about how we should live. And we look at the text to learn both of those things. But before he gets going into what we should do now because of what Christ has done, he gives us four precious verses. It's like an interlude. I'll give you 11 chapters. Now here's four verses. And theologians call these four verses, we'll be in a Romans 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 33 through 36 today. You'll need your Bibles, you can open your phone, resist the Snapchat, stay in the scriptures. You can turn to it now, I'm about to read it, it'll also be on the screen, page 552. But we get this interlude that theologians call the doxology. Paul goes for 11 chapters of theology, the study of God, and then he goes to doxology, the study of glory. But the thing is, in the church, doxology doesn't mean the study of glory, even though the word doxa means glory in Greek. It means praise and worship and thankfulness in the church. When we get theology right, it leads to worship. 
When we get theology right, it leads to worship. When we study and meditate and ingest the truth of according to Scripture alone, the theology it comes from, it, the truths that are bedrock in our life, the lifeblood that comes out of us is worship to God. And we see this in Paul. He can't help himself. So he burst into song for about four verses before turning it into, okay, this is how we're going to live. So, if you stand with me for the reading of God's word, let's read these verses. Let them soak down into your heart. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To God be the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, Father God, we, we praise you, we love you, and we ask for your blessing now. I pray it would be so silly to preach on the glory of God and not ask for the glory of God for the people of God here. I'm going to fall short in explaining the glory of God. Why? Because it's higher and bigger and crazier than anything we could imagine. But Lord, I ask that you give them experience of the glory of God in worship and sacraments and liturgy with each other throughout their week that they could say, oh, I know what that was talking about. I know what that verse was talking about. I'm experiencing the glory of God because I follow Christ and I don't seek my own glory. Lord, I pray for that and I ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. And so, hey, everyone loves some mystery in their lives, right? Everybody likes a, likes a narrative where you don't know exactly what's behind the, the river bend. People like to think about the future because there's a little bit of mystery. Some of you are binge-watching Netflix because you love mystery, right? No one's watching Netflix or Stranger Things? Wow, we need a different sermon altogether. And some of you are like, what's Stranger Things and Netflix, you holy ones? But hey, if you're losing, failing at work a little bit because of Stranger Things, you know you love mystery. You love the suspense that there could be something else out there, that there's something beyond us. And that's what Paul's tapping into. So first we're going to look at the wonder at God's glory. Then Paul's going to ask us three questions that investigate our hearts of why we're not experiencing glory. And then we'll see the solution of how you can glory in a deeper way. So the great wonder of God, look at verse 33 again. Oh, the depth of the riches of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Paul is telling us, God is not like you. He is not like me. God is beyond us. He is a holy other. He is another thing. And it's God. He is endlessly rich. This is the God who saves you. He is endlessly rich, both wisdom and different things. To God, they're just one thing. Would it be, should I pop it off? Is it, is it popping too much? Okay, cool.
Hello? But the thing is, it's just one thing to God. Because knowledge is information about a thing. Wisdom is the experience and the skill to put that knowledge to work. Now, for us, there are two things. We both need knowledge and we have wisdom. We could read Wikipedia every night, all the time, until we fall asleep, and we still fumble through ordering coffee, dating, disciplining our children, and driving. But God doesn't have any of those problems. God is full of knowledge and wisdom. They're inseparable to him. And that is part of the richness that God isn't like us. We're born as a child, and we have to be instructed in the ways of life and how everything works and how everything matters and how we should go about a certain thing. God isn't like that. He created all these things. And that's a part of it. We start to wonder, why do we go to God? Why do we sing songs to him? Because he's not like us. We're not just singing to another person or thing or a deity who's low. We're singing to a God who is high and higher and higher than we could ever imagine. That's what Paul says when he says the riches of the depths of who God is is greater than we're imagining. We need to not just have more information about God. We need to expand our imagination about God. And that's why I like things like Stranger Things, because they point us to saying, hey, maybe there's more going on here than we think. Maybe we have settled for a very natural life when actually the world is very supernatural. Maybe the realest thing is God, and it's more real than anything in this room. There is a depth and a richness to who God is that is utterly unlike us. And then look at that second line of verse 33. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths are beyond tracing out. Not only is God beyond us, but there's a sense that we can't fully know God. His paths are beyond tracing out. That's an allusion in the Psalms where it says it's like trying to trace his footprints across the sand of the bottom of the sea. It's a fool's errand to try to trace out all of God. Now, it doesn't mean we can't know God truly. He gives us his word, and by his spirit, we can know God truly, but we're not going to know God fully. And the reason, if you're like, that kind of bothers me, people don't say things like that. The reason Paul wants it to bother you is God is unmanageable. We want a safe, manageable God that we fully understand what he's doing because then we can have a safe, manageable religion where we get to kind of work the formula up to having a good life. I hit church, I listened, I didn't play on Snapchat, I feel ready to go, you know, life is doing okay, this is what we're going to do to try to work our way into the good life. But God's unmanageable. His grace, you'll get to it, by grace alone, his grace is wild, it's untamable. Now God is orderly, but he's also this wild God of fire. He led Israel by a pillar of fire in the desert. When they finally built a tent, a tent and a temple for him, And when his glory came in, people were blinded and fearful. They thought they were going to die when they finally met the glory of God. There is an untamableness to God's glory that is good for us because we remember we're not God again. This is just Paul in a different way saying, hey, you're not God, and I mean it. And that's a good thing. We are not wise or knowledgeable enough to run our own life. We need another We need a God who loves us and is beyond us, and he's unmanageable. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, So verse 33, our response is not suspicion and not being able to fully understand God, but it should be wonder. It's not suspicion, but it's wonder. A God who's beyond you, who you can't control, 
We shouldn't go, well, I can't trust him. Well, we have his word that's trustworthy. And more than that, we have his son that he sent into the crisis of our life and the chaos of the world to die for us. So we know he's good. And we can trust him. So let us wonder at a big God. It reminds me of a scene from the C.S. Lewis book um, in the Narnia series, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, where this little girl enters another world. And she's standing in the snow, and there's some trees around. And she hears that there's a king who rules this world. And the king, his name is Aslan, and he's a lion. And when she hears that and that they're going to meet this Aslan, she's kind of scared. She goes, should I be nervous meeting a lion? And she asks this kind of magical beaver, which, you know, we're in fairy tale world here, all right? He asks this magical beaver, and the beaver says, she goes, is this lion safe? And the beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And that's what God is like. Of course God isn't safe. He's not like you. But he's glorious. And more than that, he's good. And that's where we start to wonder at God. And we've lost some wonder in our life. We kind of think we all have it figured out in scientificness. We have it figured out in the history books. But I want to urge you as the people of God to say, Lord, help me worship something that's not me and not like me. And so, what is glory? What is glory? We need to define that word. It's the, it's the heart of the sermon there. We got to define it, and it's tough to define. So I'm going to go to the Hebrew word is kavod. Kavod means the weightiness, the worth, the majesty, this just thickness of meaning that is so heavy that it defines everything else around it. John Piper, an older saint, puts it this way. God's glory is the infinite worth of God gone public, the radiance of his holiness, the radiance of his manifold, infinitely worthy and valuable perfections. This is the ultimate reality you seek. This is whether it's in relationships or careers or however you want to define it or our kids or in our studies or our curiosities. There's this ultimate reality you were made for, and it's God. He's the keystone in architecture of all the other stones line up with. He's the tuning fork of of music that he sets all the other keys. When we look for meaning in life, we find it only in the glory of God. And so if we're a people devoid of wonder, we're also people devoid of meaning. We need a God that's glorious to define meaning to our life. Because what happens when we don't find God's glory? If you're built for glory and you live and want glory, but you never find it in God, what happens? You drift into one of two camps, and they're on different spectrums. One spectrum is you end up in self-dependence. You say, I've tasted a little bit of glory when I graduated, when I won a championship, when I had that sexual experience that was great enough, or I had that relationship that was great enough, and you keep chasing it. And you, you see these people, and maybe you are this person, that they're climbing the career ladder, they're fam- climbing the family house ladder, they're climbing the car ladder, whatever the ladder is, because they are chasing down glory because they say, hey, glory is scarce in this world, and i got to find it, and i got to fight for it. If I want a piece of meaning, I better achieve. But then there's this other end of the spectrum. If that's self-dependence, the other way, if we don't find God's glory in this life, is self-despair. And that's where addiction comes in. It's the devoid of hope. No one full of hope wants to be addicted to opioids or meth or any of those things. I know that's a crisis around here. It's a crisis in my hometown in East Atlanta. 
I lost my eighth high school friend to it this year. And it's a crisis of hope as much as it's a physical crisis. It says, I know there's glory out there, but I've lost hope in ever finding it. It might manifest as boredom, obscure hobbies, choosing a mindless job and doing it mindlessly, checking out on a marriage or a relationship. Whatever it is, it's the same glory hunger gone wrong. One says, I'm going to chase it down at all costs. The other, self-despair, says, I've given up hope, so I'm just going to run out the clock, take some knees in life until the end. But the problem is you might think, well, what do I do? I'm a glory-hungry person. That's a good thing, right? But it doesn't feel like a good thing because if I have too much of it, I go to self-dependence. I have kind of too, too much of it, and I don't find it. I go to self-despair. What is the Christian way forward? What is the way forward in your life? And I would argue that C.S. Lewis has a great answer here. Because he says it's not, the problem is not that you desire glory. It's that you don't desire it enough. That you find yourself too easily satisfied in the glories of this world. Look at this quote, or I guess listen to this quote. This is C.S. Lewis writing on glory. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like the ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies, playing in the mud in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday, a vacation at sea, we are far too easily pleased. When you feel a hunger for glory in your life, a hunger for meaning and more and truth, and even a truth that you can give yourself over to, You ever feel that way? I wish this was true enough to where I could really give myself over and trust, and it could even teach me how to be fully alive. This ultimate realities. C.S. Lewis says, yeah, that's the hunger that needs to drive you to God, that you can find in the glory of God. But instead of knowing what is meant by the glory of God or how to pursue it, we end up making mud pies instead of enjoying that holiday at sea. I love British holiday. Let's bring that to America. It's better than vacay. That's, that's the worst. Let's get rid of that. So what's getting in the way of us being like a moth uh, to the flame of the face of God's cl- glory? Why do we end up chasing lesser flames? Why do we end up like moths wandering onto the highway, getting hit by the headlamps of cars, instead of finding ourselves before the glory of God in this eternal flame of who he is? And that question is in the text. Paul's going to ask us three questions, so, so look at these questions. They're very serious. That's why you need your Bible. You don't need Snapchat. You need the screen of your phone on Romans 11, verse 34. He's going to ask us three questions, and these questions aren't just Paul making it up. They're all from the book of Isaiah or Job, same books where he, God is questioning man, saying, who do you think you are? Do you see how how you think about me limits how you experience me? Because the thing is, if God's glory is so great and it's out there, why are we not experiencing it at the level we wish? Why? Well, let's ask the three questions and do some examination. First, who, verse 34, first line, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has known the mind of the Lord? And this points out theological pride. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has presumed to know what God is thinking? Who is presumed to know the ins and outs of God? And the problem with theological pride 
is we are not privy to God's mind unless he flatly tells us in our word. And the problem with all knowledge, especially theological knowledge, even though we can know it truly and we want to bank our life on this reformation, it tends to puff up. Has everyone met someone that's a little puffed up on theological knowledge? How'd that go? (laughs) They're a lot of fun, aren't they? Because you know you're puffed up on theological knowledge or any knowledge when the point of your knowledge is no longer God. When the point of your knowledge ends in any place other than God and typically self, something happens to your heart. It grows cold. Because the point of yourself is not enough to grow a warm heart towards God. It's kind of, it's similar. Have you heard the phrase, never trust a skinny chef? It's like never trust a non-joyful pastor. (laughs) That's a a bad move. Never trust a non-joyful Christian. Remember, just like Paul, he wrote the greatest theological book in the history of the world in the first 11 chapters, and it ends in glory and praise. If you're not ending there and you're learning about God or really anything, then you're starting to have a pride in knowledge or theological knowledge that will limit your experience of the glory of God. The second question, look at second line of verse 34. Or who has been God's counselor? If the first is a, is a pride, a pride of thinking, the second is an arrogance of thinking. When it says counselor there, who has been the one to judge God? Who's been the one to say, I know a little better than how you're acting, God? I know a little better than the way you've set out life, God. I know a little better about what you should be doing in my life or in my church or with my kids or whatever else than you, God. And the arrogance of thinking, it's a height of arrogance because it's denying that we're created by God. It's denying we're created for God. It's denying that God's still active in the world. Because we only really critique him if we think he's just up there somewhere else and he's not getting involved enough in this shooting or this thing or this tragedy. And we start to judge God instead of, the Bible would tell us, we are the ones on trial. God's not on trial. And that really challenges our modern assumptions of what it means to search and and find God. We kind of put God on trial and see if he's worthy of our praise. When the Bible would flip it and say, human, you're on trial. And and if you're you're new here, if you don't know Christ, if you're investigating Christianity, that's great. You don't have to agree with that. The elders here don't think you should have to agree with that. No one does. But it is something I want you to know what the Bible would say, that God is not on trial. And my stronger challenge would be to the believers in this room, specifically the members of Eritas. In what ways have we put God on trial or believed our way was better? And we believe our way is better. And we need to examine ourselves and ask for people to speak in whenever we're living for our glory instead of God's. Because that's the heart of it. I believe the counsel for my life is better than God's counsel for me. If I want God's counsel, I can live obediently for his glory. But if I run my own counsel, it will only be for my glory at the best of times and destruction at the worst. Third thing. Third question, Paul, and they, they keep getting harder, so it's not like it gets easier. The text is the text. So, verse 35, who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? And if the first one is a pride in our thinking, the second one is arrogance in our life, the third one is God owes me something. And the thing is, we think that's ludicrous. We can all pretty quickly go, no, dude, God doesn't owe me anything. God's big. I get it. He doesn't owe me things. But the true test of this one 
is God gives everything. What happens when he takes away? That's a different story of what does God owe me question. It comes up when God takes away. And there's two different ways to respond here. When God takes away, there's bitterness. And bitterness says, I deserve better. I deserve better than this loss of relationship, child, home, job, emotional, professional disappointment, whatever it is. I deserve better. I'm better than the other people around me. And that's what God owes me something. And it doesn't trust God for the future in any way. And we need to avoid that at all costs. Because there's a different way to respond to loss. And it's not joy. We don't jump for joy at terrible loss. We can have joy in God, but we don't jump a joy of truly terrible loss. Instead, we embrace sadness, which is the same heart God has. When Jesus' friend had died in Lazarus, he wept. He didn't go, hello, guys, don't cry. No worries. I'm going to raise him from the dead. He sat and wept with people. When Stephen the martyr died, it says the elders took him and buried his body and wept bitterly that they'd lost their friend, even though they're fully assured that Stephen would rise from the dead one day. When Paul left for Jerusalem, he was going, and he knew he was going for the glory of God, part of the mission of God, and the elders of Ephesus said they just cried on the beach, knowing they would never see Paul again. Our response to loss as Christians is sadness. And what sadness says, Lord, I don't deserve anything. I'm thankful for all the things you've given in this life. This world's crazy and broken and suffering's everywhere. Thank you for any relief in my life. And that's how you embrace sadness because loss will come. Maybe it's already come in your life. Maybe you're young and it's already come. Maybe you're a little older and it hasn't come in a big way, but it will. Loss finds us all in this life. And how we respond to it, either in bitterness or in sadness, will matter a lot. And it points out that's one more way we limit when it comes to uh, pride in our thinking. We, we limit God in our arrogance, and then we limit God in how we respond to tragedy and loss to where suddenly God's glory is not enough and our glory is threatened. So turn to verse 36. It's the last part of this, and it helps resolve and harmonize a lot of these things. Verse 36 reads this, For from him... And through him, this is God, for from God and through God and for God are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. From him is a powerful phrase. It affirms what we've probably spoken a lot today. All things are from God's hands. That's what makes him glorious. There's nothing in this state or this country or this world that is not from God. Y'all, state flower is a hibiscus, right? Right, maybe. Not, not very passionate about herbology or botany. Good. Um, when you look at a flower up close, you don't decrease in wonder. You increase in wonder. And that's how God's made you and everything else. There's a sense that the more we look at what God has come from him, the more we'll wonder at the God who made him. And when we see this, there's no room for us to have theological pride if there's endless knowledge to attain that God already has. And through him means two different things here. One, is it means in the Colossians 1.15 sense, that currently God is sustaining the whole universe. That's a claim the Bible makes. They didn't set it and forget it. It's not a latchkey kid. It's not a microwave meal. That the universe is upheld by God right now in a full 
Like he's sustaining it all. The planets, they're set in motion, but he's carrying them in motion. You're breathing oxygen, and God is sustaining that oxygen. The sun rises, but God is making the sun rise over and over. And that's the wonder of God that we've kind of over-edited out. We're like, no, look, there's principles. Well, God set those principles and keeps them going, and that is what God does. But the second meaning of all things are through him. The second meaning of all things are through God means redemption. Look at Colossians 1.20, or you don't have to look, I'll, I'll read it to you. For through him, God is reconciling everything to himself. He has made peace with everything on heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. God is reconciling everything to himself by Christ. That's the world is through him. Things are through him because part of the God I've described today a lot of what I've said could be affirmed by a Muslim. That God is great and big and powerful and infinite and not like us. There's a lot of religions that say that God is other and big like that. But Christianity is the only religion that can claim this. As great as God is, as great as I want to worship him and have wonder at him, I can trust him because his greatness is matched by his goodness in his character. Because other religions could say their God is good, our God proves he is good in Christ Jesus. He comes as a man, not to save all the good people who are, who are being plagued by the bad people, but to save sinners of whom we are the foremost. He comes when we are enemies of God. That's Romans 5, 8. He says, well, we were still sinners. God came demonstrating his great love for us and died on our behalf to reconcile us to God. You are reconciled because of God's goodness. And so if you're wondering, like, I don't have a lot of wonder in my life. I don't even know what we're talking about today. You will experience the greatness of God through starting to savor, savor the goodness of God in Christ. If you're already savoring the goodness in Christ, I want you to make that sacrifice of what Christ did and who he is in your life greater. By savoring the goodness of Christ, that it would increase your respect and awe of the greatness of who God is. There are two sides of the same coin. You could call it love and justice. You could call it whatever. But it's God's glory being made manifest. There's a scene. Who, who reads Harry Potter? Anyone? Kind of like the hibiscus. <laughs> Good. Good. I saw more hands. I'm, I'm glad we're we're good in the wizarding world. Um, I'm a I'm a dork um, first, but second, I really like Harry Potter. Those are unrelated. And the second book of Harry Potter is the Chamber of Secrets. In the very beginning of the book, there's Harry Potter the Great. He was a boy who defeated the greatest dark wizard of the time, but he did it as a baby. So there's just this aura around Harry Potter. He's like 12 in this story. And people are like, wow, he, he must be this great wizard, but like he's a boy. And, and this little elf who in their culture is like a little slave comes and meets Harry. And he's heard all about him, and he's nervous. And the elf's name is Dobie, and he starts to describe a problem he has. And Harry looks at him and says he wants to help him. And Harry drops this line, or Dobie drops this line about Harry. He talks in third person. Harry Potter asks if he can help Dobie. Dobie has heard of your greatness, sir, but of your goodness, Dobie never knew. Dobie has heard of your greatness, sir, but of your goodness, Dobie never knew. I don't want that to be you today. 
that you've heard of the greatness of God and his glory, but not tasted the goodness of who God is in Christ. Or maybe you have a shallow goodness of God because God isn't great to you. That maybe he owed you something when he died on the cross. Or maybe you think you have it all figured out in theology. Great, I have a whole systematic theology about that. I want you to put yourself, put yourself to experience the goodness of God in Christ and let that magnify the glory of God in your life. So I got three applications as we finish. Three big things I want us to think and believe. Number one is this. I want you to break the chain of self-despair or have freedom from self-dependence because of the glory of God in your life. There is a way that you can experience what is ultimate, that you don't need to be in this extreme of self-despair or this extreme of self-dependence, but there's a way out, and it's through knowing the goodness of Christ. The second big application is I want you to have a vision for your life like that milkmaid with the cow. Luther said a milkmaid can milk a cow to the glory of God. And so whether you're doing diapers or dishes or disciplining kids or driving, yes, driving included, you can do it to the glory of God, but you must contest. You must fight for every second of your life. You can experience God's glory through obedience at every second of your life. And it literally is capturing every thought and saying, Lord, I'm mowing this grass to your glory, God. Thank you for the grass. Thank you that I can mow. And Lord, let me experience your pleasure in my obedience. Lord, I can say I'm sorry first to this person. Why? Because you've reconciled to me, and I'm going to do it for your glory. Lord, I'm going to do this hard thing, this boring thing. I'm going to be a computer data entry guy to the glory of God. And that's a new vision for your life where you can start asking questions like, how is my home announcing God's fame to the neighborhood? How can I encourage other coworkers to labor for God's glory? How am I resting in God's glory and I don't have to fight for my own glory anymore? It's okay if people speak bad of me. I don't have to run around confronting them or run around trying to do a PR campaign for how great I am. God is great in my life and I can deal with the rest because I trust him. What opportunities do I have to show God's glory? So no more drudgery of diapers or dishes. Yeah, there's things that are not fun, but we can do them to the glory of God to redeem them and have a real vision for tomorrow. And the last thing is, as we move to worship, I want us to worship God and ask to experience God in his glory now on Sundays, every Sunday when you gather. You're doing a powerful thing. Why would we ever form a local church if we were not going to worship God? Why would we ever form a local church and do the sacrifices of work and service and the hard work of relationships and showing up over and over and over if we're not going to taste the goodness of God ourselves? We can't be selling something we haven't experienced. We can't be travel salesmen of a place we've never been. So let us experience that land and that place of God's glory. But I also want you to realize it's not here yet. There's a nowness to God's kingdom and glory, but there's also a not yet. And one day, we will get it all. One day, the sun will stop shining. According to Revelation 21 and verse 11, the sun will end. This is the end of time. The sun will end because the radiance of God's glory will be the only source of light, and it will illuminate everything. God's big plan to redeem the world, he created it, then we broke it through the fall, he's redeeming it through Christ, and every single wrong is going to be made right. Everything that feels out of place is going to be put in place. Everything that never got better is going to be better and new. And his big plan is that the glory of God that we experience now, some in our life, 
There won't need to be stars or sun or moon anymore. There will just be God's radiant, blinding glory in the entire universe. And there will be no stars at all. There will be no other light. And that will be the only light by which we live our life. So why live for God's glory now? Because it's the only thing that will ever matter. A trillion years from now, we're going to think it was really silly every decision I made for my own glory. And every decision I made following Jesus for God's glory is going to seem like a really great idea. Because that's how we're spending eternity. And if that sounds bad to you, then I would urge you to examine and say, do I know Christ? Because Christ lived for God's glory on the cross. He sat in the garden and said, is there any other way, God? But he said, no, to your will, for your glory, in obedience to your name, to these scriptures, I'm going to die on this cross. If we will follow Jesus, we must live for the glory of God. We cannot live for our glory and God's glory simultaneously or at the same time. We must live for God's glory alone. Let's have freedom from despair. Let's have a life apart from self-dependence, a vision for our daily life, and worship today like we're longing for tomorrow. I'm going to pray. Garrison's going to come up and lead us in Holy Communion. Lord, Father God, I thank you uh, for this church. I thank you for its people. I thank you for all the things you're doing in their midst. And I pray that all of us would live for the glory of God alone, that we would see that all lesser glories, they're just not worth it. They're just not worth it. They don't satisfy like we need to be satisfied. We're hardwired for a glory to come, a glory that's beyond us, a glory we can't fully understand that's unmanageable. And Lord, let us not be proud in our thinking. Let us not be arrogant in our life. And Lord, let us think there's no other way but your way. We love you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, brother. Very much appreciate